grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We introduced the Beatitudes um, this week, or starting this week, we're wanting to start marching through them. And what we see in the Beatitudes are really three secrets to the blessed life. Now, if you don't know what the word blessed means, I recommend you go back in time to last week and get caught up. But uh, So we're going to assume we all know what the word bless means. So with that, if you'll stand with me out of reverence of God's word, we want to read verses 1 to 5. Matthew the evangelist writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 1, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask, as always, as we gather, you would open our hearts, we might receive your word, our mind that we might understand it, our eyes that we would see your your glory and your kingdom, our ears that we will hear and heed your word, our mouth we speak the truth of the gospel to ourselves, to one another, and to a lost and dying world, and our hands and our feet that we will go in obedience to Christ. Lord, this is your word. Show us your way. We might live by your wisdom. And may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. You might be seated. Several years ago, when we were living in the parsonage, our kids had a pet rabbit. Wasn't my idea, I assure you. It's almost as bad as having a pet cat. And nevertheless, we had a pet rabbit. And our toddler really loved this rabbit. And, and on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, we would have church actually in the parsonage. It was uh, a, a more convenient for everyone to have it over at the parsonage and smaller group. And so uh, well, one day when they came over, they found out we had a pet rabbit. Well, everyone wanted to meet our pet rabbit. So we told our toddler, hey, go get our pet rabbit. He went and got our pet rabbit. He brought our pet rabbit so everyone could see our pet rabbit. And eventually, after everyone had their turn with the pet rabbit, you don't want to hold a pet rabbit. I'm just going to tell you now, you don't want to do that. That's almost as bad as having a pet cat. And so everyone got done with the pet rabbit. We told our toddler, will you return the rabbit to its cage? And we were young parents. We're still learning. We still have the new parent smell. We were still figuring this out. We thought that when we gave instructions to a toddler to do something simple, the toddler would take the instructions, interpret them appropriately, and do exactly what it is that we ask. It's about the way it is when they're teenagers. And so, so uh, uh, we, we, we never heard anything else. The rabbit never reappeared. Uh, the rabbit was gone. We thought, well, great. The rabbit's been put back in its cage. It can make a mess and whatnot in there. It can eat and eat and eat in there all it wants to. Well, after everyone left and we thought the day was over with, time to get ready for bed. We went to go check on the rabbit, make sure it had plenty of food for the night, and we discovered the rabbit had disappeared. We looked everywhere for this rabbit, everywhere for this rabbit. And we thought, maybe the rabbit escaped outside. I mean, that's just awful. But, but maybe, you know, the, the pet is gone. And, and, or, even worse, what if the pet didn't disappear? It's running around our house. You don't want a rabbit running around your house. I mean, can you imagine just the messes that thing's going to make and just what it will eat and get into? That's just not good. We're looking just ever around this house. Till eventually we asked our little toddler, do you know where our pet rabbit is? I don't remember the pet rabbit's name. So it's just pet rabbit, okay? And, 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 and he's like, yeah, yeah, I know exactly where the rabbit is. See, what we did as parents, and you can tell us if it's right or wrong, is we didn't childproof our house outside of the uh, electrical outlets. We did uh, childproof those, but for the most part, we, we didn't do that. But we gave the kids uh, a, a, a cabinets that were at their level, 
right? Two, uh, one cabinet with two doors down here, and then we gave them two drawers that were down low. We just didn't want to fight that fight. And so, so they, could, they could put toys in there. They would put a lot of their junk and whatnot in there. They could even climb inside the cabinets, play hide-and-seek, and it was cute and all that sort of stuff. Well, we asked, Do you, have you seen our pet rabbit? Like, yeah, I know exactly where pet rabbit is. They put the pet rabbit in one of those cabinets so that they could return later and play with their pet rabbits. That was the last place we thought we would look for a pet rabbit. You don't put living playthings in the cabinet. You put non-animate things in the cabinet, right? You put the rabbit in the cage. But it really is made. We looked everywhere for this rabbit. And the last place we thought to look is exactly where it was. So too... You and I spend our lives looking everywhere, up and down, left and right, for the secret to the blessed life, a life of flourishing and prosperity and joy. And we can't seem to find it. We'll spend endless amount of dollars. We'll we'll go all around the world. We'll read any and every book, watch any and every program, and we're just still trying to find it. Here Jesus comes and he says, it's in the place you would never imagine to look. And he points us essentially to the gospel itself. Notice that, that what we have here in the Beatitudes are the three seconds to three, three secrets rather of the blessed life. And, and here we see the first major one, and that is the secret to the blessed life is a humbled faith. A humbled faith. And notice he begins here, verses one to three, with um, a humble faith. Uh, destitution, a humble destitution. Go down to verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, right away, the paradoxical nature of the Beatitudes is evident in this very first one. Poverty has been blamed for many things throughout history, depression, sorrow, even crime. It has never been credited with joy. It's never been credited with prosperity. It's never been credited with flourishing. It never has. Until Jesus showed up and said, that's exactly what uh, we, we should find. You know, one of the things about us Americans is that we love rags the riches sort of stories. We, we, we love that. I've joked for many years that if the Garden Channel ever, uh, HGTV, I call it the Garden Channel because there's no gardening on HGTV. Uh, but if the Garden Channel ever contacted us for an idea for a, for a telly show, I would say my wife will be the perfect host and I've got a perfect title for it. It's called Goodwill Hunting. It's a show basically where you renovate a house only with the items you find at a Goodwill. You can find all that sort of treasure stuff, right? Stuff people just trying to get rid of. They don't want to deal with it anymore. And she'll come snooping into Goodwill behind my back thinking, I found something. Our house has been missing, right? Every man who's ever lived in a hardware floor sort of house has, has had this moment, right? Where, where you walk to the hardware, hardwood house and your wife will say, ooh, I love hardwood, right? And you think, well, we're always going to have hardwood. Great. I don't have to get out of vacuum cleaner. I don't even have to buy a vacuum cleaner. We have hardwood floors. And then the first thing she does, she goes out and buys rugs, you know, carpeting to cover the hardwood. And now you got to get a vacuum cleaner, right? I mean, it makes no sense to me whatsoever. But we love these rags the richest stories. In sports, we love what are called Cinderella teams. 
And that, of course, takes us back to Disney. All hail Disney. And, and that's a story of someone who, who would never become princess is made princess and ultimately queen. We love these sort of stories. And so we convince ourselves that if we work harder, if we believe in ourselves, if we push ourselves, prove ourselves, and rise to the ranks, then and only then will we find joy. But that is a lie. The blessed life does not begin with your potential. It begins with God's grace. Notice that language of blessed are the poor. The Greek word here describes a beggar. Beggar, More specifically, it describes someone with nothing. For example, there are two words for poor that, that could be used here. This one describes a beggar. The other word is the word used to describe someone with a little bit of money in their pocket. Maybe it's 50 cents. I don't know, but it's, it's a little bit. That is not the word Jesus used here. He uses a word that describes someone who is destitute. Someone who is at the bottom. Someone who has absolutely nothing to bring to the table. In other words, blessed are the beggars in the spirit. Now, some have suggested, particularly when they bring Luke into the story, that Jesus is describing here material poverty. That makes absolutely no sense. If the blessed life, if the secret to the blessed life begins with poverty, then the worst thing you can do is help the poor. Jesus goes around and he helps the poor. Well, isn't he robbing them of the blessed life? Likewise, you wouldn't want to work for a living, would you? You're robbing yourself of the blessed life. That's not consistent with what the Bible says. Rather, Jesus says, blessed are the beggars. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Clearly, what Jesus is describing here is spiritual poverty. You can uh, materialistically be poor and spiritually bankrupt. You can be materialistically wealthy and still be spiritually bankrupt. Socioeconomics does not contribute to your spiritual health. It is not robbing you or contributing to your spiritual health or the blessed life. Before the eyes of God, you and I are empty without merits. And that is the lie, uh, the opposite of which that we've been told by the self-help religion. We're told that if we pump ourselves up in the morning, if we believe that we deserve the best, we will automatically, automatically then be happier and better. What we discover, however, is you cannot manufacture the blessed life. We come before God empty without merits. It's been, this has happened several times. I don't think I'm guilty of this, but you all know that my dad is a mechanic. Whenever our cars won't start or have issues, we call up our father. And I know several times that the car that is in question is sitting in mom and dad's driveway. And, and, and we'll say, dad, uh, or not me, my brother's sister, usually my sister, will say, dad, I don't know what's wrong with the car. I, it was working fine, and then I get here, and it just won't start. That's said, what's it do? Well, you know, we started, it just, just won't kick on. He, he asks all the diagnostic questions. We don't know the answer to. We ain't mechanics. And, and so he goes, I'll look at it, right? He's going to check this and that. And the battery seems to be working. Spark plugs seem to be fine. He goes through it. And then he goes, can I just ask a real quick question here? How much gas you got in that tank? <laughs> well, you know, I know it was low, but there ought to be plenty. That's the problem. Trying to make it home on an empty tank. He ain't getting very far with that. So too, when we are spiritually bankrupt, we will not thrive. 
unless, of course, we, are, we find our wealth in something more that is me. Whenever we are filled with Christ, then we find the secret to joy. Jesus suggests that if we want to become immeasurably full, we must first come to him as altogether empty. The blessed life begins when we fall on our knees and confess, I am impoverished, Lord, fill me up. So he begins with a humble destitution. He then moves to a humble disposition. Here it is, we see it in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Just as it is paradoxical to suggest that poverty creates riches, so too is paradoxical to conclude that sorrow produces joy. John Stott, the late John Stott, Episcopal uh, theologian, uh, translates this beatitude as happy are the unhappy, right? Now, you, you get it now, right? Happy are the unhappy. Now, this word mourn is used 10 times in the New Testament. It often describes uh, more than mere crying. It describes uh, bewailing. For example, when Mary Magdalene comes up to the empty tomb in, in Mark chapter 16, it says, Mary Magdalene went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. Notice the word uh, mourn is a stronger word there. It's associated with wept. She's bewailing. After all, she wonders, has, 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 has the body been taken? How would you respond with a few tears? No, you would bewail, you would mourn, you would, you would cry out, right? And that's the word that is used here. Now, the Bible gives us what it is that we should mourn over. After all, the, the language says, happy are those who mourn. And the question is, over what, right? Are you just going to sit there? Today is a good day to cry. That right? That's not what he's talking about. The Bible does give us a few reasons to mourn in our search for the answer here. Uh, Jeremiah 9.1 tells us we should mourn, uh, if you can read that, uh, 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 regarding suffering, right? Jeremiah is known as the, uh, uh, the weeping prophet. He wrote a whole book called Lamentations following the destruction of the uh, Jewish temple. And so in light of, of suffering, there, there is room, the Bible tells us, to mourn. We should mourn in light of death, right? Uh, uh, Abraham mourns the death of his wife, Sarah. Jesus cries tears at the tomb of Lazarus. But what does Jesus have in mind here? Remember, I, I think that the Beatitudes aren't just individual proverbs left to be translated, but rather he has is, he is given us the full picture one bite at a time. One piece at a time. And so if we begin with spiritual poverty, a confession that, that we are empty and need to be full, what then are we mourning over? And consistent in the New Testament, not to mention the Bible, is that we should weep over our spiritual condition. We should weep over our sin. The half-brother of Jesus in James chapter 4 makes this point. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Same word used for mourn there. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, he will exalt you. Notice how he associates the humility of mourning over sin with the exaltation that Christ does when he fills us up. He says the same thing in James 5 verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep 
and how for the miseries that are coming upon you. He looks at those who are committing a specific sin. He says, your response should be that of grief, should be that of sorrow, should be that of bewailing, that we are guilty of sin. Now, when was the last time you or I contemplated how egregious suffering, sorrow, and pain is the direct is was directly caused by our unrepented sin. How often do we really think about that? Now, what we usually do is we justify our sins because our sins are always justifiable. Now, <laughs> our spouses, yeesh, you know, God needs to get a hold of them, right? Our boss, what a terrible human being. Now, if I were in that job, <laughs> let me tell you, things would run smoothly. And if they didn't, there'd be justifiable reasons. We do. This is the way we think about ourselves. We think of ourselves quite highly. Now, in a secular world, nothing is sacred, but nothing is profane. Have you noticed that? Uh, There's nothing sacred, right? But at the same time, uh, we seem to be going out of our way to take whatever is profane and we try to magnify it. It's It's no big deal. It's all subjective. The Christian comes and says otherwise. I love Stott here, and and he says that we have many reasons the more. Quote, the truth is there are such things as Christian tears, and too few of us ever weep them. That's true, isn't it? When was the last time we really looked at our own lives and we got serious with sin? We never really do grieve over the sin we've caused. You need to know, relationships in your lives have been, uh, have been ruined because you failed to address sin. There are people who have a poor view of the gospel and of Christianity because of your sin before them. You and I have committed horrendous sin. Rarely, if ever, do we ever address them. Jesus, as he was marching towards Jerusalem, I didn't put it up there, he mourns over the state of Jerusalem. It says when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, now they're hidden from your eyes. He began to weep. Here he's saying, look, right here is your Messiah, and you are blinded to him. So he mourns over their state. Spiritual pride blinds us to the ugliness of our sin. Sin is described in the Bible as uncleanness, unholiness, unrighteousness, filthiness, etc. There is nothing good about it. Right now in our city, there is a lonely, pregnant teenager considering her options. Right now in our city, there is a father waking up in someone else's bed. Right now in our city, children are wondering if daddy will come home in a good mood. Right now in our city, there is corruption, there are broken homes, there are desperate parents, there are impoverished families, there are abused children. If we cannot weep over sin, what should we really weep over? What impoverishes us spiritually is sin. Pure and simple. Sin separates, sin destroys, sin corrupts. If you are seeking the blessed life, Confess your spiritual poverty brought about by your sin. And so the secret to flourishing is to admit you're robbing yourself of flourishing. And what's robbing you of it is your sin.
There's no room here for victimhood. Well, if I grew up in a different home, if I lived in a different part of the state, if I were a little wealthier growing up, if I had opportunities other people had, if I had done this or that, or if they hadn't done this or that. No, 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 no. If you're looking for the flourishing life, it's not circumstances, it's Christ. What's standing between you and Christ is your sin. Happy, then, are those who are unhappy. Here's the third and final. A humble demonstration. Now, to be clear, you see here in verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word meek has a bad reputation because many associate the word meek with weakness. A meek man is not a weak man. A meek man is one who is strong without needing to prove it. Strong enough, he doesn't need to prove it. When I was a teenager, I was a bit ornery, um, and, and I, I, I've always liked to tease people and whether or not they wanted to be teased. And so the rednecks of my school were something else, right? They were their own breed. And I don't know where they came from, but they were there. And uh, they loved making truck noises, right? And I thought that was cool when you're in third grade making truck noises, right? Because you got Hot Wheels. You, you got your Tonka uh, dump truck. I had a Tonka dump truck. I made all kinds of truck noises. But I was eight, right? You shouldn't be 18 and still making truck noises, right? So one day in middle of class, we weren't doing anything else. I mean, it's Pokes, Illinois County. So I'm over there just going, wow, just, just giving it, you know, putting it in gear and just going at it out loud, just Mm, right? And I remember after my demonstration, one of the rednecks came up to me and he said, quote, that a diesel? <laughs> that a diesel, right? Like, it can be, I mean, you can be whatever you want. It could be a girl diesel, a boy diesel, anything in between. At this point, it could be whatever you want it to be, right? My goodness. <laughs> that a diesel, right? But here's the thing. If your manhood in particular is tied to the truck you drive, the fights you pick, or the women you abandon, you are not much of a man. And I wouldn't call you a strong man. Meekness, on the other hand, is strength properly placed. It describes our attitude towards others. If I spend my whole time trying to impress you, what does that really say about how I view myself? A meek man is strong already. Warren Wearsby, uh, I think, helpfully uh, introduces these first three. He, he says that the, the first beatitude, poor in spirit, is our attitude towards ourselves. We are spiritually impoverished. The, the beatitude that we must mourn is our attitude towards our sin. The third beatitude that blessed are the meek is our attitude towards others. I actually find that quite helpful. But this, again, is an unfolding drama. When we see ourselves as spiritually bankrupt, brought about by our sin that which we lament over, we realize we are in desperate need of a Savior. And in that context, we see this developing the idea of humility. For what kind of Savior do we have? A dude who walks in, pounds his chest and says, the man has arrived, literally, y'all. No, he doesn't do that. Rather, he is humble, he is meek, and he has the power of the universe within his hands. Yet he washes feet. He's a man of meekness. Now, throughout the Bible, such meekness, in fact, we could use the word here, Weakness 
is the secret source of strength. Let me give you two examples. I can give you about four or five uh, others. 2 Corinthians 11.30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things, Paul says, that show my weakness. Because Paul's argument, you can keep reading this in 2 Corinthians 12, where he develops this more, where he lays out all of his weaknesses and hurts and, and humilities. He'll say, look, when I am weak, it is in that context God is strong. How is it God can take a weak man and do incredible things? I'll tell you why. Because God is the one strong. And when I am dependent upon him and I lean on him and I am meek in him, though I am weak, though I have limitations, Christ is glorified in them. In my weakness, he is made strong. Hebrews 11.34 in the uh, infamous uh, 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 hall of faith, right? It, it says that the saints of old quenched the uh, power of fire. That's a strong thing to do. They escaped the edge of the sword. Well, that's a strong thing to do. And then notice this. They were made strong out of weakness. Becoming mighty in war, putting foreign armies to flight. There it is right there in the middle. In their weakness, they were made strong. Not despite their weakness, but in their weakness. Not we should ignore their weaknesses, but right there. This is true strength. The meek are not weak. They are self-controlled. They are faithful. They are dutable. They are honorable. They are virtuous. They are wise. They are servants. Blessed are the meek. Several years ago, my wife and I watched the movie 42, which tells the story of Jackie Robinson and how he took over Major League Baseball. There's a great scene in it when Jackie Robinson is talking to Branch Rickey. He says, quote, you want a player that doesn't have the guts to fight back. Branch Rickey responds, no, no, I want a player who's got the guts not to fight back. People aren't going to like this. They will do anything to get you to react. Echo a curse with a curse, and they will hear only yours. Follow a blow with a blow, and they'll say an African-American lost his temper, that an African-American does not belong. Your enemy will be out in force. You cannot meet him on his own low ground. We will win with hitting, running, fielding. Only that. We will win if the world's convinced that you are a fine gentleman and a great baseball player. Like our Savior, you got to have the guts to turn the other cheats. Cheeks. Can you do it? At which point in the movie, Jackie Robinson responds, You give me a uniform, you give me a number on my back, and I will give you guts. That is meekness. That is strength. Blessed are the meek. I mentioned earlier that if you want an example of one who is meek, we need to look no farther than Christ. For he embodies this sort of strength. In fact, we get this in his triumphal entry. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus enters Jerusalem not on a white stallion, but on a lowly donkey. Now, donkeys were royal animals, but, not, but it's not the sort of animal Caesar would have ridden on. Not the sort of animal Pilate would have ridden on, but it is the sort of animal the Messiah would ride on. So it is we get in Matthew 21, which isn't up there, unfortunately. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. See, it was strength that kept the nails in his wrist upon the cross, not weakness. It was meekness with blow after blow he still succumbed to his own death. For in that weakness, 
we are made strong. Happy then, fulfilled then, are those who are honest about their spiritual states. Because then you can address it and get it right. Happy then, are those who mourn over that state. And in coming to the Savior, they meet Christ who is meek. February 16, 1546, Martin Luther, the great reformer, composed his very last letter. And as such, it is, it, 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 we have his last written words in history. At the bottom of the letter, he simply wrote these words. We are all beggars. This is true. And in that simple statement that took the imminent uh, arrival of his death to realize is the first secret to the blessed life. We are all beggars. This is true. If you don't believe me, look again what Jesus has to say. The blessed life doesn't start with our entitlements, our resumes, or our achievements. It begins with a humbled faith. You see, verse 3, if we are spiritually bankrupt, we're given a kingdom. You see it there? We're given a kingdom. That's far greater than what you were pursuing to begin with, wasn't it? Verse 4. If we mourn over the shame of our sin in Christ, what are we given? The comfort of grace. Not platitudes, not bumper stickers, not self-esteem, but to be wrapped into the arms of the eternal Savior. It's a lot more than what you were looking at before, wasn't it? And what does it say there in verse 5? When we become humble and meek, what are we given in Christ? The earth itself. That's far grander and greater than what we were seeking, isn't it? If we come to Christ with a humble faith, deal honestly with who we are before the judgment seat of God, that's the secret. That's the first secret to the blessed life. A humbled faith that when we are made empty, He fills us up. So I don't know what your story is here today. I don't know what brings you. I don't know what challenges that you face. But I do know the answer to it. The answer comes simply in Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Maybe you've never taken your sin very seriously. Maybe you walked the aisle, you've gotten baptized, all that sort of stuff. But you've never addressed your sin. I'm going to ask you to do that here this morning. Maybe it is that you've been looking for joy and contentment and peace and, and, and prosperity in all the wrong place. I'm going to ask you to be, begin again right here this morning. By faith in Jesus that humbles us. That when we are empty, we can then be full in Him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as you would be so kind as to